Thanks very much, Ian, and thank you for sharing your thoughts on the greatest story, the stories we enjoy, uh, and uh, your haircuts are still buzzing into my phone as well. So thank you for that. Uh, that's, that's fantastic. I'll look forward to uh, looking at them over lunch. Uh, Imelda has said the Anzacs. Uh, Mim has said Anne of Green Gables. Mim, it won't come as a surprise to you to know that I haven't read that. Uh, so thank you, for, thank you for sharing. Mim, I'm sure you were aware of that already. Uh, Seven Little Australians or Harry Potter. Very good. Uh, Elise and Lucy say The Chronicles of Narnia. Very good. Thanks, uh, Elise and Lucy. Lottie says The Good Samaritan. Uh, Harry uh, says Nick says Sherlock Holmes. Josie says Barack Obama's biography. Well done, Josie. There you go. Uh, Dave Barker, Back to the Future. All right. Excellent. Uh, the Book Thief. Says Beck by Marcus Zuz, that guy, uh, whoever that is. Uh, here's a here's a story. My mother told me when I was a small boy that wet concrete burnt you if you touched it. The greatest story ever told. Thank you, Jeff, for sharing that. Uh, At the back of the North Wind by George MacDonald is pretty epic too. There you go. A couple of recommendations there. Um, and uh, and Robin saying I agree, except I like the movie better. There you go. That that's um. That's how it works, isn't it? You watch the movie rather than read the book. That's stories we enjoy. Of course, it's impossible to just say what, whatever story you enjoy. In a Christian context, we always come up with the right answer. The right answer is the Bible, of course, but that's not where we're going today necessarily. When we talk about stories we enjoy or the greatest story ever told, I wonder what we would say the answer to be. Well, according to the TV show, Being Human on the BBC... The greatest story ever told is us. Look at what the the, uh, byline for this particular program said on the BBC website. Our story, that's humanity's story, is remarkable. The greatest story ever told. And while it is the story of astonishing development for our species, it is also the tale of billions of individual lives echoing down the millennia, all of them full of hope and promise, fear and disappointment. As we discover more about reality, we continue our ascent into insignificance, becoming a vanishing footnote in space and time, a speck of dust in the vastness of the universe. But to be human is to be at the centre of our own universe, to experience life in all its colours and all its potential. This is what we want to celebrate with being human, the awe of being alive and the thrill of discovering what it means to be us, the greatest wonder in the world. Now, there is so much here to consider, isn't there? So much here to consider that that being human is yet to be a speck of dust, yet to be the greatest story ever told. That we are yet a vanishing footnote on the history of the world, yet a people with potential and thrill and there are some things here that don't seem to compute. What is humanity? Who are we? Why are we here? What is our hope in this world? This is what is summarised in the big word anthropology, the study of Man, the study of humanity. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. This morning, we're going to see what humanity looks like under two headings. And each of those headings have four smaller headings underneath it. There you go, if you're taking notes. Likewise, if you've got questions, slido.com using the hashtag HBSP as well. In the meantime, I'm going to pray and then we're going to think about humanity together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you 
for your word that you've spoken to us about who we are and what we're like. And we ask that you would teach us today by your word that we might understand who we are and what it means to be human beings made by you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I uh, need to tell you a story. Uh, Our microwave blew up this week. It's not so fun. Uh, Someone was cooking some food in the microwave and all of a sudden flames started to shoot out of the microwave on the inside. And we thought to ourselves, that's probably not supposed to happen. Think we need a new microwave. Uh, And so we got online and we ordered a new microwave and we went down and picked it up and we brought it back and we put it in the scenario of the of the uh, kitchen and we made it uh, made it work. It's pretty easy, isn't it? You plug it in. And yet some of the dials on the front are not the same as our old microwave. It's not exactly the same. We press the pasta button and it does all sorts of other things that we're not quite sure about anymore. And we've still got to go back and what do you do? Read the manual. Even for a simple thing like a microwave, you've got to go back and you've got to read the manual. Isn't this in contrast to all of us who have had the blessing of bringing children into this world? As we bring the child home, as we bring the microwave home, we also end up with a series of problems, don't we, sometimes that we don't know how to fix. The problem is that the child, when they come into the home, don't come with a a manual wrapped around their leg. They don't come with a series of instructions wrapped around their leg to tell us exactly what to do when there's a problem. Yes, they're cute and cuddly. Let's face it, we all were at some stage, but it doesn't tell us anything about us. Where's the warranty? Where's the warranty? That's right. Why? Why are we here? What does this tell us about ourselves? Are are we here just to consume? Are we here for the sake of community? Are we here for the sake of continuing the human race? Are we here for, well, by chance? Why are we here? Well, thankfully, we do have a definition. We do have a definition of humanity. Humanity defined by God. You see, uh, this is why we have attacked this series in this way. We have not started with ourselves, but we have started with how God reveals himself to the world and then God himself so that we can best understand ourselves. John Calvin put this best in a quote that you'll see on your screen. It is certain that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face and then descends from contemplating him to scrutinise himself. And so having done that over the last couple of weeks, we now turn to see what God says about us. As I mentioned, there'll be two points this morning, each with four little sub-points underneath it. And the first little section, I want you to keep your Bible open. We're not going to do a lot of Bible flipping in this first section. We're going to stay in the book of Genesis and in that passage that Ian read in particular. So first of all, who are we? Well, as humanity, we are made in the image of God. We see this at the very beginning of the whole Bible as God creates humanity, as God creates us, we see in the very first chapter of the Bible that we are made in the image of God. Now, just as people go looking for meaning all over the world about what it is that we are and who it is that we are and our meaning in the world, likewise, Christians go all over the place to try and find what it means to be made in the image of God. But here in this very text itself, in Genesis 1, in its immediate context, we have a bunch of things that 
we are told about what it means to be made in the image of God. So here comes the first of the subpoints. To be made in the image of God is to be made relational. Look again at Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. You won't see this on your screen, just in your Bible in front of you. Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Do you notice the language here in this verse? There is plural language used. We, us, our, these sorts of words are employed as we see our relational God. As we saw last week, our God is Father, Son and Holy Spirit in eternal relationship with one another. One in three, a Trinitarian God, our triune God. And we saw last week that our God is relational and he says in verse 26, to be made in his image is to be made relational. There is no surprise here that God uses plural language to describe what it might be like for us to be made in his image. See, this is very significant for us as we live in this world in 2021. We are made to be relational and most particularly to be made relational to God. Out of all that he made, God chose to speak to one creature. God did not speak to any other of the creatures other than to bring them into existence. But for us as humanity, God spoke to us. He speaks to the man, he speaks to the woman and our connection to him is our first point of relationality between us and God. We are not independent individuals living our own life in this world. We are first of all deeply connected to God and just as God is involved in a love, mutual love relationship between Father, Son and Holy Spirit, so we are to be relational to that very God who made us. But that's not all. Not only are are we to be relational to God, we are to be relational to others. This time you will see it on your screen. Look at Genesis chapter 2 verse 18. Then the Lord said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. We are to be relational not only to God, but to other people. It is not good for the man to be alone alone just as God existed in mutual love relationships since eternity past so we are to live in relationships of mutual love in the image of God see this is very important for us because as we dive deeper and deeper into a world of individualism which says that it's about me and my needs and my self-centered rights and so on and so forth, we get further and further away from the image of God that he has made us to be. God has made us in his image to be relational beings who give ourselves in love to other people and to God. This is what God has done since eternity past. As the father self-sacrificially loves the son and the son self-sacrificially loves the spirit and the spirit self-sacrificially loves the father and so on in all of the combinations that you can think of. So we are to self-sacrificially love other people. This is what it means to be relational and to self-sacrificially love God. 
So what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, first of all, it means that we are relational, giving up ourself and our good for the good of others, just as God himself has done for eternity. Secondly, this passage teaches us that we are made in the image of God, male and female. Look at verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. This is another way of saying God made with unity and distinction. God made two genders, male and female. And both male and female are created in the image of God. Equally, equally valuable, equally in the image of God. And yet, male and female are not the same. They are different. Male and female are not interchangeable. They are not the same. Now, of course, you know, as well as I do, that this is wildly against the prevalent culture in which we live. Our cultural identity would say we are all simply individuals and anyone and anything can be interchanged so long as we love one another. But according to the Bible, this is not what it means to be made in the image of God. To be made in the image of God is to be made male and female. Not interchangeable. Both equally in the image of God and yet different. Genesis 2.18, as we've already seen, makes this point. Look at it again. It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And then when that helper is made, the man cannot help but burst into song as he does in verse 23. And he says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Do you see what the man says in his song? He is thankful that there is a unity there, that they are the same bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. But she is different to him and and he is stoked about that. They are not identical, male and female, but complementary. Distinction is spoken about in verse 23. And this is the second key to us as to who we are as humanity, our identity. Now, of course, further on as we go in the Bible, a marriage between these two complementary people, the male and the female, will be used as a metaphor for how Christ will love his church. And we've talked about this before, haven't we? How marriage in, uh, in this world is a uh, multi-time metaphor across the world to show us just how much Christ loves his church. And we saw earlier in the year in the book of 1 Timothy that this uh, marriage relationship is also to give us a guide as to what life is to look like in the household of God called the church. Nonetheless, we must understand just how much damage we do to the identity of humanity when we divorce from our minds the idea that God has created male and female in the image of God. It is very important that we stick to this, that we hold strongly to this in our culture who will disagree with us on every point that I've just made here. But we must stick to it because it is it is a key identity marker of what it means to be human. 
To be made in the image of God is to be made relational and to be made male and female. Thirdly, to be made in the image of God is to be made a worker. The key uh, uh, thing that humanity is asked to do in this opening chapter is to work. Work comes before sinfulness enters the world. Work existed in God's good creation and there's every good reason to think that work will exist in God's recreation of the world in heaven. Look at the second half of verse 26. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And then down again to verse 28. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and every living thing that moves on the earth. And so it goes on. As God rules righteously over everything, so he says to the man and the woman, I want you to rule righteously under me over everything in creation. I want you to take your model from me. That, what, that is what it means to be made in the image of God. As God is a righteous ruler, so we are to righteously rule the earth. Jesus speaks in John chapter 5, verse 17, about how his father is always working always working now this does not mean that we are to always be working after all God had for us in his plan in his law a plan of rest for us mainly to remind us that we are not God we can't get everything done every day only God gets all of his work done every day but nonetheless we are workers And our work is defined by caring and bringing order and bringing dominion to this creation that we live in and serving the creation as God serves the creation by upholding it each and every day. Look at these three passages that speak about the nature of our work as service and care. Ephesians 4 verse 28, that let the thief no longer steal but rather let him labour doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And then again in Colossians 3, bondservants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. And then again, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your own hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. We are workers made in the image of God to rule righteously over this world. Here's the problem, though. We have made work all about how much you earn or the position you have or the title you carry or whether it might be considered official work. But in Genesis 1, there is neither money earned or a position had or official work done. What it means to be made in the image of God as a worker has nothing to do with your employment. 
Sadly, for us, as we live in this world, we think of ourselves more highly if we make more money or we have a great position or we're in an official role, but this is not how the Bible speaks about work. After all, if this was the case, then we cannot say that the unemployed person is made in the image of God or that the disabled person who is not able to work in those ways is made in the image of God or that the retiree is in the image of God or the stay-at-home parent, the stay-at-home mum is made in the image of God. But it is very important to see that all of these things are work being done in the image of God. See, we live in a world, don't we? And I know this is true for some of you, who if you are someone staying home looking after the children, that you feel as though you should be out working, earning money or doing other things or being productive, as if being at home is not productive. It doesn't matter who stays at home, but it's important to say that these things are productive work. Likewise, if you're a retiree, it's well known that for those who do retire, mental health is a big thing because people don't feel as though they're being productive anymore. But you can still work as a retiree. Your work is not dependent on how much money you make, the position you have and whether or not your role is official. The same is true for the unemployed and the disabled and so it could go on and on. The work we do is not tied to the cultural values we place on it, but whether or not we rule righteously over this creation under God faithfully, caring for others, serving others, using what we have with our own hands to bring about blessing into other people's lives. We can all be faithful workers made in the image of God and we must go a long way away from our culture's value system when it comes to what legitimate work is. Fourthly, being made in the image of God is to be valued by God. No other beings in all of creation were given the title of being made in the image of God. Not animals, not plants, not the earth itself. Indeed, not even the angels are made in the image of God. It's remarkable, isn't it? Look at this passage on your screen from Psalm 8. Speaking about the creation, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, when I look up and see all the amazing things, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. I can't believe that you'd care for humanity when I look at the creation around me. But you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honour. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You can hear the Genesis 1 language there. And you have put all things under his feet. Now here, where we see that it's a, a, a little lower than the angels, we may, be, uh, f- uh, we may be thinking that that makes the angels more important than humanity. But in Hebrews chapter 1, we, said th- we see this. The whole first chapter of Hebrews 1 is about the angels, more or less. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they, that's the angels, not all ministering spirits, sent out to serve for the sake of those, that's us, who are to inherit salvation. No other created beings, not even the angels, are given the title of the image 
of God. And you need to know this. To be made in God's image is to be made special and valued by God. To be the pinnacle of his creation. And so what does this mean for us? Well, it means a few things. First of all, it means it's important not to elevate the love of animals, plants, the earth and the angels above the love for human beings. For that would be to distort the way God has created the world. Secondly, it means that all of us, every single person, in every single race, in every single nation, in every single time in history, of every single age and stage of life, is made in the image of God and therefore valuable to God. And if they're valuable to God, then we should treat them with the same value and dignity that they deserve. We should love all people because God loves and values all people. And thirdly, this means that you and I need to see our value, not in our contribution to society or in our value in material and financial terms, but to see our value in what God has placed upon us. I could show you lots of passages for this, but let me just show you a couple. Uh, The first in Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know, when I sit down, and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. God knows you and he loves you. And this is the point that Jesus makes in Matthew chapter 6. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Of course, in that very same passage, uh, Jesus will go on to say that Uh, that God knows every single hair on your head. A bit like Ryan has said, might be doing a bit more counting at the present moment, but he knows about you. For us, we value ourselves on the basis of our finances or our achievements, our jobs, our family, our money, our ownership of all sorts of stuff. But God values us because we are made in the image of him. And this is great news for us. We are valued by God because we are made in his image. And so to be made in the image of God is to be relational, male and female, to be workers and to be valued by God. But this brings us to our second point and final point this morning, that we are also sinful. Also four sub-points under this heading. First of all, to be sinful means that the image of God is marred. As our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned, the image of God in them and in humanity was marred, or if you like, veiled. Look at what happens as a result of sin in Genesis 3 on your screen. I will put enmity between you and the woman, he says to the snake, to the serpent, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. 
Did you notice in these verses the curse, as it's commonly called, after Adam has sinned? What are we told? Well, we're told in verse 15 that the relationship between humanity and the creation that they were to rule righteously over will be fractured. Not only that, uh, the relationship between the human being and their work will be fractured so that now work will be hard and frustrating and difficult and you don't want to go to work tomorrow. We see that the relationships between men and women are fractured. There is a split in the gender as they now want to jostle for position in this world. And we see that even though human beings continue to be valued by God, there is a change to the nature of the relationship as the human beings are now sent out of the garden and they turn their back on God and reject him so that there is no unfettered relationship with God anymore. Every part of what it means to be made in the image of God is broken. Our relationships with God and one another, broken. Relationships between men and women, broken. Relationships with the creation, broken. Relationship with our work, broken, and our value to God is always there, but from our point of view, it's broken as well. The image of God in us is marred. So what does this mean for us? Well, it means this. It means that humanity, as it looks for its identity in this world, as that BBC program I shared at the moment, at the beginning said, it makes sense that we find it difficult to find our identity anymore. For our identity in the world is at best scrambled, difficult to come by, hard to see, like looking through a foggy car windscreen. As we look for our identity in this world, we find it hard to to see it there because it is distorted. We all know what it's like, not at the moment, we all know what it's like to go to Luna Park or the circus You see those mirrors there and you can turn into the very wide mirror or the very tall mirror and it distorts what we look like. If we look to the world for what it means to see our identity, we will find a distortion because the world is marred. Our image in the world is marred. Instead, we need to go back to what God has said right at the beginning of the Bible before sin enters the world about what it means to be made in his image and to find our identity. Secondly, sin in the world has not only marred our image, but sin in the world has come universally to everyone. No matter the race, creed, culture or age we find ourselves to be, sin is universal. And sin is ultimately rebellion against God. Something that we all do, whether we know of him or not. And sinfulness is defined not by what we do to other people, as bad as that might be, but by what we do to God. Remember this passage from Psalm 51. David had committed the sin of sleeping with Bathsheba and then having Bathsheba's husband Uriah killed on the front line. And strangely, he says this, For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Then he says this, Against you, you only have I sinned. And done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. It seems strange, isn't it? Because clearly David has sinned against all sorts of other people. But such is the nature of sin against God that when compared with sin against people, it is magnified to an enormous degree. So that David sees it as being only sin against God. Sin is universal. 
and it is defined by rebellion against him. And Romans chapter 5 verse 12 teaches us that sin has come into the world by one man, our forefather Adam, that we might describe as original sin. David himself spoke about this in Psalm 51 verse 5. Just the next verse over, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Sin starts in our very human nature, in our very DNA, even before we were born. And as we go about all parts of life, all of our lives are enmeshed in sinfulness. Sin is universal. As we rebel against God as our natural tendency, which brings us to the third of our subpoints here that sin is enslaving. Sin infects and affects us in every way. Our head and our mind and our feelings and our decisions and our outlook on life, every single thing is affected by sin. Look at these three passages you see on your screen, starting with John chapter 8. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And then again in Romans 6, just just look at the highlighted sections here. You see it again, uh, slaves of sin, set free from the slavery to sin. And down in verse 20, when you are slaves of sin. And then again in Romans 14, 23, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Before we were a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, everything we do is impacted by sin. Every single part of our life is affected by sin, including our will or our ability to make decisions. Sometimes people love to talk about God giving us free will. And if what you mean by that is that God gives us the conscious ability to make decisions that actually count in the world, I'll go along with you. Except that the will we have to make decisions is not free. Before we know Christ, our will is bound in sin. So that every decision, all those conscious decisions that we make and that are real, are bound in sin such that we cannot choose to not sin. As Romans 14, 23 said, everything that does not proceed from faith is sin. That's why we use the confession that we did this morning that says, there is no health in us. And that even leads us to not being able to, in our own volition, choose God. Look at these two passages on the screen from 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4. In their case, God ha- of the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And Ephesians 2 says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world. Dead people can't choose God. Yes, we will make decisions in this world, but without Christ coming and breaking the shackles of sin for us, we remain enslaved to it, such that every decision we make in this world is not out of free will, but out of a slavery to sin. And what this means is we need God to come in the person of Christ and to unshackle us and to set us free. And we'll talk more about this uh, as we deal with Christology and soteriology discussing, discussing salvation. Finally, sinful people are broken and limited. It's amazing to think, isn't it, that as we rebel against the God who made us, that he would allow us 
to continue on in our rebellion day after day, week after week, year after year for an average of 70 to 80 years per person in our nation. That is quite amazing. And yet, sin brings brings brokenness and death into our world. As Romans 6.23 famously says, the wages of sin is death. And that means all of us. Because sin is universal and enslaving and so death will come to all of us. And think about what this means. It means that hardship and death is an inevitability in your life and my life. It is inevitable. Are you prepared for that? See, it's hard for us to understand, isn't it? As we look out into this world, we often think to ourselves, God owes me. God owes me a certain number of days on this world. He owes me a life without hardship. He owes me the ability to get through death. But brokenness and sickness and death are a part of the world in which we live. And yes, it is right to pray for healing. Yes, it is right to pray that life would reign over death in this world. And yet we must still understand that it is inevitable that we will go through hardship, sickness and death. Think about Lazarus, the man that Jesus raised from the dead. Yes, he raised him from the dead, but Lazarus is not here anymore. He still died. And the tears that Jesus wept on that day, he might not have been on the earth to weep them again when Lazarus died for a second time. But no doubt, that's what happened. It's a result of sin in this world. And so here we have humanity made in the image of God, but marred in sin. A humanity that is now stuck with an identity hard to find so that the BBC of all people would say, humanity is great. The greatest story ever told, but really we have no meaning, no purpose. And yet we are the greatest story ever told, according to the BBC. But the good news is, There is a greater story, a greater story that is not about us. It's not about humanity per se. It's not about Adam, our forefather, but it's about the second Adam, the perfect human who came into the world and lived a perfect life, the perfect anthropod, the perfect person, the God-man Jesus Christ. He is the greatest story ever told. For though the image of God in us is marred, he did not leave us alone. He continues to value and love us made in the image of God. And Jesus, the perfect man, comes to restore the image of God in us that we might live with him forever. But more of that next week as we think about Christology. For now, as we finish, look for your identity in what God has told you about you. Not from the culture around us for as we look to the culture around us we will always be disappointed but as we come to God we see the greatest story ever told in Jesus the second Adam who loves us and came to die for us well I'm going to take a question or two now on slido.com so I'm going to give you some time to reflect slido.com using the hashtag HBSP and I'll be back in just a moment
All right. Thank you for your questions. Uh, I'm sure there's a, a few still coming in. There's one, one uh, here already at slido.com. What do you think is the appropriate duty of care we possess over the state of the earth, uh, i.e. should we be more active about issues of climate change? That's a great question. Um, uh, we should, yes, we should be caring about uh, the nature of the earth. There's a few things, though, uh, that I'd want to say about that. Some of the reason uh, that some give uh, for wanting to look after the creation is not based out of a desire to honour God, but a, out of a fear um, that we can't control the situation ourselves. That's not the right motivation for caring for the environment. Um, we are to have dominion over the world and care for the world, and that's uh, the mandate that God has given to us, and so we should take that mandate seriously, uh, and we should do what we can within our power to do so. Um, but we shouldn't do so uh, forgetting that God is out of control. He is still the righteous ruler over everything and he's asked us to be the, the sub-righteous rulers under him. And so that's, uh, that's important that we hold that intention and we make sure that we're honouring God as we do it. Um, secondly, I think, I think I would say uh, if we put our attention into those things uh, over and above the relationality that God has given to us, uh, and we ignore the, the nature and plight of people, and in so doing, we make the creation in a godlike position more important than people underneath them. Uh, then I think that is also a mistake to do that. So it's important for us to recognise that we are to be relational first, and we're to put those things uh, we're to put those things first. It'll be relational. Um, uh, and so if we, if we love the creation around us more than we love the people in the world that God has made, then we're getting the image of God uh, out of whack. Uh, nonetheless, yes, I think we should be uh, caring and thoughtful and interested in what's happening in our creation and looking to look after and steward the creation as best we can. Thanks for the question. How would you encourage us to live in the tension of knowing that we are both made in the image of God and valued with the knowledge that we are also sinful? Um, uh, exactly that. I'll give you one example. Um, uh, my, well, at the risk of being too direct, I can tell you about my marriage. This is how it works out in my marriage. Um, my wife is made in the image of God. Um, she deserves uh, dignity and value and all of that sort of stuff, not just because I love her, that's a good thing, but because she's made the image of God. That's actually the first step in the story. Stop there, Steve. Stop there, stop there. That's what it means to be made in the image of God, um, and that's the, that's the most important part. But um, I am sinful, she is sinful, that's important for us to keep in mind, and it actually tempers my expectations about what I'm looking out for out of her. I'm not looking for perfection, uh, I'm looking for someone who uh, is made in the image of God, and she will, will sin against me, I will sin against her, that is how it works. And so you walk into the world, you walk into that relationship, you walk into your work relationship, you walk into your church relationships, recognising the people deserve the value and dignity that comes alone from God, but they will be sinful. And so you temper your expectations and say, oh, well, they will sin against me. I will sin against them. That's going to help us in the way we relate to one another. But nonetheless, I'm going to value you to then forgive you just as God forgives us. And I'm going to restore that relationship and work hard at relating to you. So I think that tension in our lives is a really helpful one to remind us of those two sides of that story. It helps us to live in the world, to give people value, but to recognise that there will be sinfulness that requires us to forgive them and them to forgive us as well. I hope that's helpful. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you define who we are. 
Help us, we pray, to understand, you, uh, understand ourselves aright uh, because you have told us that we are made in your image. Uh, we thank you that you have come to fix the problem of the marred image in us, the sin that, uh, uh, that creates brokenness and difficulty and hardship and death in our world, that you have sent your son to deal with that. And we thank you for teaching us about who we are. We pray that you would uh, uh, continue to help us to find our definition from you and not from the world around us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.